This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to in 39 countries around the world. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com. Welcome back to another Shade of Blue story here on The Felon File, our podcast where we look at crime and punishment, the good guys, the bad guys, law enforcement issues real crime issues and incidents that have happened in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond here. And I am your host, Scott Lunsford, coming to you from the top of the mountain here in Madison County, North Carolina, with Victoria, as you know, running the control board for us and and keeping everything in order. Our Shade of Blue story for today, we're going to go to 1871, Rutherford County and Henderson County, North Carolina, just a couple of mountains away from us, a couple of counties away. If you ever have the opportunity to visit, I highly recommend it. They have some great things to see there and some great festivals. And of course, the Apple Festival there is fantastic. Henderson County is known for its apple crop here in North Carolina. Now, looking back at the time period, 1871. According to published research, nearly 4,000 African-American Southerners were killed by white mobs in the decades following the Civil War. This same study states that there were 102 victims in North Carolina alone. Seven of these incidents that fit what the study's definition of a lynching is occurred in Western North Carolina the Appalachian Mountains here in Western North Carolina. The study done by the Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit organization from Montgomery, Alabama, the group's count of racial lynchings in the South is about 700 more than previously researched and indicated. The report titled A Lynching in America, Confronting the Legacy of Racial Terror States that North Carolina, though, had one of the lowest numbers of lynchings in the southern states. Not exactly something you want to be proud of, the fact that they were happening anyway. One of the incidents in this study of Western North Carolina was the murder of an entire family. It did have its racist aspects. However, in looking into the incident, there are still the issues that the murderers also occurred in an attempt to keep someone from testifying in court about the other's criminal activities. Therefore, yes, racial aspects of the crime were not the only reason that it occurred. Historically, lynchings are alleged to begin with a perceived slight against a Caucasian person or an allegation of a crime by an African-American male almost always ended with a lawless mob rushing to conduct a public and ruthless execution themselves. However, these incidents can also occur because of several other reasons, not just limited to the race. 
the type of crime, who the suspect is, who the victim is, does it appear the defendant might escape justice, or at least the justice the mob feels they deserve? There's a very good explanation of that. And you can take the average IQ of everybody in that mob, divide that by the number of people in the mob, and that gives you generally the IQ of that particular mob. And the more people that are there, the dumber they are. Now, again, this week's Shade of Blue story comes from a list of incidents that occurred in Western North Carolina. And according to most of the documentation that I located, the victim and his family were very well liked and respected to a large degree by the Rutherford County community they resided in. Rutherford County bordering up next to Henderson County. At the end of the Civil War, it was the start of radical changes in the United States. Attempts to recover from years of war, recognize the rights of four million formerly enslaved people, and deal with the backlash of the recovery attempts. In 1869, Congress passed the 15th Amendment, ultimately ratified in 1870, securing the right to vote regardless of race. In the 1870s, Congress launched an investigation of the Ku Klux Klan to expose their activity, stop Klan members from committing crimes while hiding who they were behind hoods and robes. Congress enacted the Enforcement Act to make it illegal to band or conspire together or go in disguise upon a public highway or private premises to violate another's constitutional rights. In many of the states, organized or put together laws very similar to that. The state of North Carolina had its anti-mask law that impacted adults wearing masks in public. And of course, with the pandemic we just went through, kind of did away with that, among other things. In 1871, when our shade of blue incident occurred, Reconstruction was still ongoing. Democrats had just regained control of the 1871 North Carolina State Legislature. They impeached then-Governor Holden and removed him from office. The first governor in American history to be impeached and removed from office in that way. In an article in the May 4, 1871 edition of the Raleigh Daily Telegraph, the story was shared with the state and the nation. It was just one of several statewide publications that put out the accounts of the murder of Mr. Silas Weston and most of his family. Silas Weston was the son of a white man and an African-American woman. He had been classified by the state as a free Negro during the Civil War, and he lived in the northern part of Rutherford County, with his wife. Uh, the area then ominously known as the Dark Corner. Dark Corner was an area in the southwest corner of Henderson County that also encompassed a section of Polk County and Rutherford County in North Carolina and Spartanburg and Greenville counties in South Carolina. Government men or revenuers were often sent in to locate blockaders or illegal distilleries 
No one liked the revenuers. Most were met with mistrust, hostility, and violence. Many revenuers went down the road looking for blockade distilleries, and many never returned. Kind of the Copperhead Road story comes to mind. It was from the Dark Corner that many of the most infamous murders in North Carolina occurred during the 19th century. In the year of 1871, in Rutherford County, about 10 miles from the courthouse, on the road leading from Rutherford to Marion, North Carolina, a man named Henderson lived. He was known as the head of a relatively large family, considered an honest, dirty mountaineer who knew what it was like to work hard all his life for a living. Henderson was also known as a most uncomprising old line Whig. Before the war, his word was law and gospel in his community. After the war, he became a very strict Republican. Among his family at the time were two grown sons, Columbus and Govan. G-O-V-A-N, Govan. Now these apples didn't fall too far from the tree. Described in some documentation as chips off the old block, meaning their father. They too were radical Republicans of the day and were intolerant of the views of many of their neighbors, but aggressive with many of their enemies in the dark corner. Now, during the war, they were very strong Union men, the family was. They took pleasure in piloting escaped Federal soldiers from Salisbury and other Confederate prisons across the mountains into Tennessee and the Federal lines. For these reasons, the Adar family had many enemies among those whom they delighted in denouncing as sesh, which is a term used to describe Confederate individuals who had favored the war against the Union. And this term continued past the Civil War. Like most, the old man, Mr. Adar, and his boys despised the law that governed alcohol producing that the federal government had passed. So they distilled their own farm-grown whiskey with, without paying a $2 tax on the gallon as it was in 1871. They did not hesitate to run a blockade distillery, as they were called. Like-minded individuals would often quote the inherent right of the people to do as they please with the products made with their own hands as their fathers and grandfathers had done before them. They felt it was against their civil liberty rights that they must pay a tax on whiskey and brandy that they created. One of their neighbors, a Mr. Martin Baynard, sometimes worked in their employ. He was a married man with three children. Now here is where the Shade of Blue story turns a little bit into fantasy. A fantasy supported by several articles in newspapers in the 1900s, including a very famous extensive article written in the New York Times in 1898 with the following headline, quote, North Carolina Romance, Woman Weds an Old Lover Who Saved Her Husband's Life, Bloody Story Ends in Peace. Tragic history of illegal moonshining distilleries, deeds closed happily in Texas after 20 years. I don't think the case was closed that happily. We still have 
a very serious murder to talk about. Now, according to the story, Martin Bernard's wife, Sally, was known far and wide in Rutherford County as being the prettiest woman in the county. She was educated at an all-girls boarding school in the town of Hendersonville. She was said to be a perfect example of womanhood by all standards, with hair as black as the wing of the raven, red blushing cheeks, and the most attractive features. Now, we'll get more on Miss Sally Baynard a little bit later. Now, Henderson Adair and his two sons, Govan and Columbus, with along with the neighbor, Martin Baynard, were caught running a blockade distillery in early 1871. They were also allegedly involved with a large, a rather large shipment of brandy or whiskey from a business competitor. Two witnesses of the events and with individuals who had knowledge of the manufacturing and larceny was a biracial couple, Sally and Polly Weston. Sally and Polly and their four children lived there not too far away in Rutherford County. Now the Weston family consisted of Silas, who was 40, his wife Polly Stedman Weston, and their three children, David, who was eight, Theodosa, who was six, and a young infant as well. Also, a 12-year-old young man by the name of William Stedman, who was the son of Polly from a previous relationship. They were called to testify before a grand jury for an indictment on criminal charges against the Adars, Adairs, against the Adairs. Silas, who was described, again, as a good man and did not really want to testify, was really not given a choice by the court system. However, he wouldn't lie, and when he was sworn in before the grand jury to tell the truth, that's exactly what he did. Or he told the facts as he knew them. Based on this testimony in the grand jury, Martin Baynard, Columbus Adar, and Govin Adar were charged with stealing the brandy. They, including their father and other men, were also charged with running a distillery. Weston was to be the main witness in court on their trial. Now, according to newspaper accounts, the men were also or Ku Klux members, which was a term used to describe Republicans involved with the Ku Klux Klan. The A.R. family ended up threatening Weston with his life if he chose to testify. However, he indicated he would regardless because he had no choice. He had to tell the truth. As soon as the Adar family and Baynard found out they were indicted and that Silas Weston was the only witness against them, they conspired and agreed to murder Weston and his wife to remove the witnesses against them and to carry out the unwritten law of the moonshiners against an informer. Weston, his wife and children, lived in a cabin about two miles away where the Adair family lived. Now what occurred is best told by Polly Weston herself, as it appears in her testimony documented in court records in the state of North Carolina versus Columbus and Govan Adair and Martin Baynard. Located on page 300 and 301 of the sixth volume of the reports of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Going back to 
1871. As Polly relates it, on April 26, about one hour into the night, she and her three children had risen from the supper table, leaving Silas Weston, her husband, at the table feeding the youngest child. Polly heard the dog growl and bark in the yard. She proceeded to go look out a crack that was in the wall at the end of the cabin to see what was bothering the dog. Putting her face to the hole, she was soon fired on from the other side of the wall. The powder burning her eyes, staggering back, she screamed, I'm killed. God have mercy on me. At that point, the door burst open and Govan Adar entered the house, fired on her husband while he sat at the table, and once more as he tried to take his infant's child to safety. Govan Adar and Martin Boehner dragged Silas, put him to the floor, and cut his throat. Columbus entered the house firing on the other two children, David and Theodosa. They were killed instantly. Polly attempted to get under the bed, but she was drug out. Govan tried to shoot her, but his pistol misfired. The other men then shot and struck her, giving her seven severe wounds. They then attempted to cut her infant's throat, then proceeded to set the bedding in the house on fire and fled from the house, the attackers thinking everyone inside was dead or going to be. Polly lay on the floor until the flames began to burn her hair. Then finding her infant still alive, she took the child and placed him outside the house. Bravely going back in, she drug out her daughter, whom she had left lying just outside the burning house. But unfortunately, she was already dead. Being unable to carry her further on account of a wound to her arm and her shoulder, she left her there. Then taking her infant son, she escaped to a neighbor's house, a Mrs. Williams, with the infant who lived about a mile away. She told her neighbors the story of the murders and, and what she recalled of who the raiders were and what they looked like. She related to others that night and the next day as well what she saw. The following day, the house was found burned totally to the ground. The remains of the bodies were found and located corresponding to the size of Silas and the children. They were found on the site of the burnt house. The young daughter was found dead with a bullet hole through her breast. Her body burnt and lying where the mother said she had left it when she escaped the night before. Still alive at the time, but thinking she would die soon, Polly made a statement about what happened to the magistrate, who later documented her account, on the chance that she possibly was going to die before a trial could happen. The arrest of Martin Bernard and the two Adairs, Columbus and Govan, was made by Magistrate Haynes and a posse at, the, at their father's house on the morning after the murder. April 27, 1871. A trial was scheduled to be held in Henderson County, and it was thought that not only would it be best for legal reasons, but for the security of the defendants, that it be moved to Henderson County, from Rutherford County, where the homicide occurred. Polly did survive, so did the infant. 
and she was able to give testimony to the court on what had happened the night her family was murdered. Now, in the cross-examination of Polly Wesson, defense attorneys insisted that her narrative that she gave should be confined only to the facts connected with the killing of her husband and not cover any of the particulars of the other homicides. This objection was overruled by the court. I'm not exactly sure what good that would have done the defendants, but the neighbor Sally ran to also was put on stand to substantiate what Polly Weston had testified to. She stated that Polly asked me to send for Mrs. Morgan, who lived a short distance away. She wanted to tell her all about it, who did it, and what had happened before she died, as she really expected and believed that she would soon die. An objection was made to this declaration, again, that Polly Weston thought she would die or expected to die from the injury she received. The solicitor insisted that it was proper to be saying this and to confirm Polly's testimony. The defendant's counsels attempted to impeach her testimony in, in several different ways in the cross-examination, but they were overruled by the court. In the appeal, the testimony was also overruled by the court, by the Supreme Court. Now, Haynes, a magistrate, was also placed on the stand and examined to show how Polly Weston's statement to him the following day after the murders was made. He swore Polly to tell the truth, but didn't take down her account at the time until afterward. On the same day, though, he wrote everything down. And then he proceeded to tell from the stand what she had told him under oath about the homicides. This was objected to strenuously by the defense attorneys, but it, the judge allowed it to be admitted into the testimony, into evidence. The written statement itself was never put into evidence. It was also in evidence that when Haynes, the magistrate, went with the posse to the home of the father the following day after the homicide to arrest the defendant on being asked the question, where was Barnard last night? And doing so in such a manner as to charge him or indicate him with participation in the homicide. Govan Adair denied all knowledge of Barnard's whereabouts the night before and replied that he also had no knowledge of the homicides and the murder. The state then offered to prove as a circumstance against Govan Adair that Haynes and Henderson, the father, were talking in the presence of Govan, that Haynes had told the father that Polly Weston had made an affidavit before him stating who had committed the homicides. Now, immediately hearing it, this, Henderson Adair hollered out, Is she not dead? And his son made the comment, Did I ever hear the like? This testimony was also objected to, but admitted by the courts. They seemed to be all surprised that, that Polly survived the attack. 
The state asked the testifying magistrate what Henderson's manner was when he explained, Is she not dead? This was objected to but admitted by the court. The jury was given the case that Saturday afternoon. Unable to agree on the case immediately, the judge on that Saturday night, shortly before midnight, continued the court with adjournment until Monday morning, where deliberation was continued until Wednesday when they returned a guilty verdict. They were tried and convicted on the evidence mostly from Polly Weston, the family survivor. Barnard, while still under sentence of death, ended up making a confession of his own connection with the homicide murders. Because of this confession, the governor delayed Barnard's death sentence at his request. He said he didn't want to be hung with the other two brothers. So he was given a delay in his execution until October 18th, several months after the boys were supposed to be hung. After the proper appeals were made, the brothers were given their final punishment for the crimes they committed, suffering the extreme penalty of the law on the gallows in Hendersonville, North Carolina, on Friday the 12th of July, 1872. Fifteen minutes before 12 o'clock, the prisoners, Govan and Columbus, appeared before Sheriff Terrell W. Taylor and his deputy on the scaffold. Govan's eyes stared downward, fixed on the ground. Columbus stood and observed the large crowd gathered to watch the two men die. And from this gallows stage, the two sat upon chairs between Sheriff Taylor and his deputy. Both the boys wore black suits and white shirts with cravats. Newspapers reported that Columbus had a red ribbon fashioned to his coat, Govan a black one. I couldn't find a reference to the meaning of the ribbons and the colors in my research, unless it was just simply to be able to tell the two bodies apart when the execution was over. I'm not sure. As was the practice, a minister came and prayed strongly for the prisoners. Then it was reported the two appeared to be unmoved by the prayers. Columbus called for water and, once having a drink, addressed the crowd. He denied having committed the murders, denounced the confession of Baynard as false, and said that it was unjust that he should be hanged and Baynard given a delay in his hanging. Having concluded his speech, Columbus requested the sheriff to show him his coffin. Now, at his request, the lid to the wooden death box was removed, and he blankly stared at it for a moment without a word, then simply turned and retook his seat. Govan, his brother, immediately stood and addressed the crowd, telling the gathered humanity that it had fallen to his lot to die on the gallows, that he would not say much as he had made a statement to the newspaper reporters that would be published, in, as well as an affidavit taken by his lawyers for possible use in court to help his family. He made the statement, though, I am not guilty of murder. The slain is not on my hands. Though I have been tried and convicted, that does not make me guilty. The murder of Salas Weston and the children was a most atrocious crime but I did not commit it. Barnard has confessed and charged the crime on my father and my brothers, 
He is a coward and confesses to only saving his life. But I will never confess not to save my life when I say a thing, I mean it. What my brother has said about the governor I endorse. He could pardon a coward, but he could not show any clemency to a brave man. Some people don't like the looks of a brave man, but would run over him. Well, I will show you one man in Western North Carolina who is not afraid to die. I am glad so many of you come to see me die. I must have some friends, as it is not usual for so many people to come see a man die. I have no more to say. Well, the speech is now finished. The minister once more took up the central stage and addressed the crowd in what the papers described as a most eloquent and impressive manner. The minister then offered a last prayer for the condemned. Humbly kneeling on the platform, Columbus also knelt. Govan decided to sit erect in his chair, notwithstanding Columbus' request for him to get on his knees. The prayer having been said, the ministers bade them farewell and left and stepped back from the gallows. The sheriff told them to stand up. They arose and stood erect while the nooses were placed on their necks. No expression change could be seen on their faces. Not a nerve quivered. The sheriff now bound their arms behind their bodies and tied their feet together just above the ankles, as was the practice when you hung someone. The knots of the rope were placed under and a little behind the left ears, and the sheriff and the deputy descended from the scaffolding after first putting on the white covers over their heads. The sheriff placed himself at the end of the lever and asked, Are you ready? Columbus answering for himself and his brother, saying, Yes. The sheriff touched the lever with his foot. A dull clap was heard and the bodies of Columbus and Govanadar were soon seen dangling in the air. Now the statement that Govan was referring to when he spoke before the crowd was actually a confession. A reporter visited the prisoner's cell the day before the execution, and contrary to him saying from the gallows that he didn't do it, he told the newspaper men that he did. Also in the cell, was the condemned men's father, Henderson Adar, and two of his younger sons, Creighton and Avery Adair. The prisoners immediately spoke to the reporter after being introduced, asking him if the reporter thought the testimony that, that Baynard had given would be enough to also convict their father and brothers in an alleged involvement, telling the reporter their father and their brothers were innocent. Here are some of the questions and statements that were given in the interview that were published in the newspaper after the hanging. Reporter, but how do you know they are innocent? Govan answered, because I was one of the parties that did the killing, and they were not present and knew nothing about the matter. Later, of course, he would deny this on the gallows. The reporter asking, are you confessing your guilt? Do you? Govan replied with a big smile, I helped do it. I led the matter. Who was with you? Tell me all about it. Well, Govan said, I was a Ku Klux, which is a Republican Ku Klux Klan member, apparently. And I led other Ku Klux to Western's home for the purpose of killing the family. 
How many of you went into the house? Reporter asked. Well, we all went in, seven or eight of us. Were your brothers and father there along with you? Govan replied, no, they were not. I declare it before God. My brother Columbus here is an innocent man. The reporter asked, well, were you disguised? Govan replied, yes, we were, all of us. The reporter pointed out that Polly Weston, in her testimony, saw but three people, and they were not disguised. She identified them for who they were. How could she have been so mistaken? Govan's answer, Lord only knows. Can you give me the names of the Ku Klux who were with you at Weston's? Govan then proceeded to name seven very respectable men who were known in the county of Rutherford. Interestingly enough, the newspaper never published their names. Are you mistaken in the names that you give? He asked. The father pointing out to the reporter and Govan, well, you know, they were disguised. Well, Govan says, yes, their faces were covered, but they gave me their names and I give them to you. The reporter then pointed out, well, you say you're a Ku Klux, are you not? Are you not a Republican? Govan implied, I vote that ticket. Both brothers told the reporter, we are as ready as we'll ever be. We are not afraid of death. And their statements were published a couple of weeks later in the Charlotte Democrat on July 30th, 1872. Now, what became of the third defendant, Martin Barnard? Well, on the understanding he was to testify in a follow-up trial, on the other family members. His execution in Hendersonville was moved back and set for October 18th, three months after the Adair brothers. On the day before the hanging, Barnard's wife had been permitted to visit her husband. She was granted the privilege of remaining with him during the night of the 17th, the night before his hanging. This was on approval of Henderson County Sheriff Taylor. It is alleged by the New York newspaper that the sheriff and Sally Bannard's wife were acquainted with each other, and this was why he allowed the visit to occur. Not only acquainted, the paper article said, but while she was attending the all-girls boarding school in Hendersonville, the two had met and fallen in love. They were even engaged to be married. Now that is until something unknown happened and occurred between the two causing a breakup and Sally returned home to Rutherford County. But a man, it is said, will never forget the first love of his life, and she stays with him somewhere in his heart, soul, and mind, according to the article. We do know the fact that the jailer returned to the cell before sunrise. Now, Baynard, dressed up in the clothing of his wife, with a hand Kerchief covering his face and sobbing as if his heart would break, was able to walk out of the cell, past the guards, and made his escape while his wife laid on the cot in the cell with her back to the jailer. Around two hours later, after this had happened, the jailer brought Baynard his last breakfast, only to discover the current occupant of the cell was, in fact, Miss Sally Baynard in her husband's clothing. Reports say there were 5,000 people in Hendersonville 
who had gathered to witness the hanging. And they were a little disappointed when it was learned that the chief performer in their expected execution drama had escaped. So great was their disappointment when they learned that the bird had flown. It didn't take too much convincing for many of them to be converted into posse members willing to take out after Baynard. Now, according to the story published in the New York newspaper later, years later, when Baynard escaped from Henderson County Jail, dressed as a woman, he made a beeline straight for the state of Texas. As soon as his wife could settle her affairs and turn her property into money, she and her children quietly slipped out of the county, going to Waco, Texas themselves to meet her husband, where they were soon forgotten. But what had become of Sheriff Taylor? Was he accused of helping his former lover escape with her husband? Well, there was some talk about the county that he was complicit in the escape. However, there was no proof of it nor for that matter, officially investigated or challenged. Taylor won several elections several times after the incident. Terrell Wilkie Taylor was born in 1826 in the Dana community of Henderson County, which was originally part of Buncombe County. He first married Teresa McLean, and then he later married a Miss Betty Huggins. He was the third sheriff in Henderson County, serving from 1848 to 1852, re-elected from 1870 to 1874, becoming the seventh sheriff in the county. It was during the second period as sheriff that the Adar brothers were hung. We know for a positive that Sheriff Terrell Taylor oversaw the hanging. Baynard's hanging was scheduled for October 18th. Now, the story itself, without proven documentation, that is told by descendants of the Adar brothers and others in Rutherford County and several old-timers in Henderson County, as well as being mentioned in Frankfurt Simmons' book, From the Banks of the Okalawa. That story was that Sheriff Taylor met Sally Morgan when she was attending a boarding school in Hendersonville. They quote, fell in love, and they were engaged, but they didn't get married. That is the reason that Taylor granted the overnight visit. The story printed in the New York paper and told by some is that in the late 1880s or 1890s, depending on whose account you read, Taylor went to Texas to visit a family member and attempted to find Baynard and his wife as well. He was able to locate Sally Morgan Baynard living outside of Waco. Her husband, Martin, he had passed away. However, the couple fell in love again and soon married. This was after being apart for 20-some years. Now, this is the story written in the New York Times in 1898, describing the North Carolina romance of the former sheriff and the wife of a murderer. The article states that truth can be stranger than fiction. But in this case, the documented truth is that three men murdered almost an entire family and attempted to murder the whole family. By jury trial, the community found the charges and arrest proper and condemned the men to death. Two were hung, and the third managed to escape the noose. This appears to be documented truth. What today is regarded as fake news, that concept is not news. 
but just like today, it does sell newspapers and advertisement space, just as it did in 1898 for the New York newspaper that published North Carolina Romance, Woman Weds an Old Lover Who Saved Her Husband's Life, Bloody Story Ends in Peace, Tragic History of Illegal Mountain Distilleries, Deeds Closed Happily in Texas After 20 Years. And we know that didn't occur. Taylor's first wife died sometime around 1870. He was listed as a Democrat and was later elected as a state senator to the North Carolina General Assembly. He was elected three times. And he died in 1904. His burial site is at the Refuge Baptist Church Cemetery in Dana, North Carolina. All this information is factual with documentation. And for some reason, not only were they selling the name of Sheriff Taylor, but they were doing a great injustice to Mr. Silas, who was only trying to do the right thing when he testified against the Adar family for their illegal activities. It has been stated that Napoleon said history is a set of lies people have agreed upon. And of course, Mark Twain followed that up by saying, never pick a fight with people who buy ink by the barrel. And of course, we can't forget what Abraham Lincoln said. If it's on the internet, it must be true. The same can be said for just about any media source. For example, consider the story about Sheriff Taylor and his not only helping a prisoner escape from his jail, but then later traveling to Texas marrying the widow of said killer in 1932. An article written in the Greensboro News Record dated August 14, 1932, was entitled, Never Was a Blacker Lie. The article documents the author's interview with Mr. Baynard's brother. Boehner, according to his brother and according to the United States Census, was actually married to Catherine Gray, or Kathleen Gray, and the two were together at the time of the murder and the time of the trial. The brother said that Baynard had never met any person by the name of Sally Morgan, nevertheless marrying her. Because of this, he was married to Kathleen Gray. Furthermore, Kate, or Kathleen, had never seen or even met Sheriff Taylor before the murder trial. Sometimes after the trial, years later, after Barnard's escape and flight, Sheriff Taylor did actually visit relatives in Texas, and supposedly that's where the story started, about him marrying Barnard's widowed wife, while he was there. Not only do state records and federal censuses indicate that they were not married, but there is the question, did Sally Morgan even exist? Now the brother told the author of the article that after escaping from jail and going through the Mud Creek Swamp, Barnard went directly to Sugarloaf Mountain here in North Carolina. He spent that night sleeping on the ground underneath some brushes for camouflage until the following day, making his way to Rambling Bald Mountain. There he was able to beg for some food from an, old, an older lady he had met. 
Barnard was later seen slipping through the woods by people who knew him near Big Bony Creek in the cove. Now around the Broad River, he was able to find somebody who could provide him with or loan him some shoes, a coat, a hat, and some traveling food, allowing him to hide out in the woods for about two months. He left North Carolina, according to his brother, on October 10th of 1872, never to be seen again by his people. As a matter of fact, his wife, the lady he was actually married to, Miss Kathleen Gray, Barnard, never left North Carolina, much less going to Texas. Kathleen moved in with the Ledbetter family in the Monfort Cove section after her husband left and worked for them for several years. Although it is rumored among the family that Barnard did return just before his wife passed away for a quick visit, then quickly disappeared again. So it all depends on whom you want to believe or what you want to believe. That story, the story is that Barnard escaped from prison, went to Texas later, followed by his wife, who really was his wife, and died there, or the story published in the New York newspaper, or the truth. There is also no record of, of Barnard's death, but then again, realistically, he would have assumed a different name. But the lady he had married at the time of the trial never left North Carolina and is buried here and she never married Sheriff Taylor, and the two didn't live happily ever after, or at least not together. But we can hope that they did in the long run, though separately. That's our Shade of Blue story for today. I hope you found it of interest. We went a little long today. I apologize for that. Be sure to come back in two weeks for another episode of The Fellow File. But... Of course, you can listen to previous posted podcasts that we have. There's over 200 of them that are online. We'd be happy for you to listen to them and see what you think. If you have comments or opposing viewpoints and would like to drop us a line, you can do so at felonfile at gmail.com or hook up with us at our website, scottlunsfordauthor.com or at felonfile.com. And also linked to the sites are where you can pick up some stuff. If you like the felon file, uh, some coffee mugs and t-shirts. Be happy to have you wearing some of those and drinking your morning coffee out of some of our coffee mugs. Because I am told that your coffee tastes better in the morning out of a felon file coffee mug. Not to mention the fact that it makes your day go by better. Who'd have thunk it? In the meantime, in the coming weeks, be safe and be secure. If you have the opportunity, do something nice for somebody. Do the right thing. If more of us did that, the world probably wouldn't be in such a mess that it's in now. We'll see you guys later. Come back for another episode of The Felon File. Victoria, you got the control panel back. Bye, y'all. This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Num books and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee.
or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do felon file. Click on the coffee image on the web page to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.